0: Thank you, welcome to the Court of Appeals. It's so different to be in here without mask and without plexiglass. Uh, it's, a, it's a new day, and I hope it stays this way. I'm Judge Valerie Zachary. To my right is Judge Allegra Collins. To my left is Judge April Wood. Assisting us today are Deputy Clerk Roderick McFarland and Officer Richard Remillard. This afternoon, we are hearing SPX Corporation versus Arrowwood Indemnity uh, With regard to the appellants, um, how have you divided your time?
1: Runner Josh Durham, representing Appellant Continental. Um, we have decided to take 10 minutes for rebuttal. Um, of the primary 20, I will be arguing roughly about 13 minutes on collateral stop on race judicata. Uh, Ms. McKay, uh, who's admitted pro hoc in this case, will take about seven or eight minutes, the remainder of that opening portion, to talk about bike and pump issues. And then we've decided in the 10 minutes of rebuttal if we might be able to have just a minute or two to confer counsel for Old Republic and Federal as to how much they want to address and rebuttal as to what may have come up on during the SPX's argument, if that makes sense. Okay. Do, you, no?
0: do you have any problem? Uh That'll be fine. Thank you, uh, You may proceed. Thank you.
1: May it please the Court, again, Josh Durham for Appellate Continental Insurance Company. And for the record, I'm joined by Kevin Roeke of our office and Laura Mackay. Uh, from Hinkhouse Williams-Waltz in Chicago. Your Honor, we are here today to ask this Court to reverse the trial court's May 21, uh, 2021 ruling, and not just to reverse it, but to enter summary judgment in favor of Continental uh, that liability under its policy should be determined on a pro rata basis rather than an all-sums basis. Your Honor, words have meaning words are important. This is one of the fundamental rules that we use in our law practice. When words appear in a contract or a document or a statute, it's presumed that those words have a specific meaning, that they are not surplusage. I mention this and I start with this because it's critical to our race judicata argument. Judge Spainauer, in the preceding action said that the final judgment is binding on all parties. SPX naturally would like to discount those words, but they are the key to our race judicata argument. It seems from the briefs that the only real dispute as to the elements of race judicata in this case concern the final element as to whether there was a final judgment on the merits between the parties. I don't think any of the other elements of race judicata are in dispute.
0: Excuse me, may I interrupt? Yes. I have some questions about the jurisdiction of this court to hear this matter. Um, are, you, are you prepared to address those? I can, Your Honor.
1: And, and they are very similar to the principal parts of our uh, sort of core appellate argument because it is established without question that a party may appeal an interlocutory order if it affects a substantial right. And race judicata, if there is a risk of inconsistent verdicts or judgments, Uh, is clearly a substantial right. And then collateral estoppel, a party has a substantial right to be free from trial on the same issue that has previously been decided. And it's interesting because Case law says, with regard to collateral estoppel, a party only needs show a colorable case for collateral estoppel that the continued trial may impact their substantial right to be free from trial of an issue that's already been established. Um, so we believe we've established more than a colorable argument as to collateral estoppel that this doctrine is in play and then we think because of the sort of core part of our race judicata argument that we firmly established that that affects a substantial right as well.
0: Well are there any unresolved issues remaining in this suit as far as your client's concerned?
1: I believe there are some uh, – I think there are maybe some duty-to-defend issues that may still be pending, um, but that still does not take away from the core substantial right that's affected by race judicata and collateral estoppel.
2: So can you tell me, um, even if we were to, to accept that there's a substantial right, what, what is it about having it heard now that makes it different but having – from having it be heard when the entire case is over?
1: Your Honor, I believe that the uh, court's language in the in pedestrian walkway case uh, is particularly applicable uh, to this case. Um, and, and that case basically said that uh, there were a number of parties, there were a number of interests affected, and this very issue came up, and, and the court there Said, Given the number of parties and trials involved in the walkway cases, the need for finality and certainty in this complex and exceptional litigation, and, and I think this is applicable here, and the likelihood that dismissing the present appeal would only delay the ultimate review of the subject matter now at issue, we're persuaded that disposition on the merits would expedite decision in the public interest. We know from the record that there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of underlying asbestos claims asserted against SPX, for which not only Continental, but my fellow appellants and other insurers are going to be on the hook for. And the key issue is, are they going to be on the hook for all sums or just a pro rata portion? And for Continental, that's a difference of $20 million, which is their $5 million per policy over the four policies, or is it going to be a fraction of that? And we submit that resolving this key issue now works to the benefit of all parties, not just appellants, but also SPX and the claimants and all of those underlying cases so that all the parties can go ahead and plan right now as to what their obligations are going to be, rather than waiting to some undetermined point in the future.
0: Well, aren't there a lot of um, pending issues, though, that will affect how much, say, Continental will have to pay for the asbestos claims?
1: The only issue in the complaint asserted against Continental is this, how to determine the liability. Um, okay. there, there's no breach of contract claim. Uh, that could be a future action, but, you know, right now it's it it's, it's all sums are pro rata.
0: Well, aren't there, aren't there questions remaining about when coverage starts? You know, like does it start? You know, from the first day of uh, diagnosis and you know, things like that, that will greatly affect the amount of uh, of the claim.
1: I'm not sure if that's uh, at issue in the in the trial court. I'm getting a, a no that it's not. Uh, I don't that's believe that's an issue, an issue, Your Honor. I don't think that's an issue, and, and that's a sort of a fundamental point. I think where some of these other cases differ in terms of that that say um, that a, a sort of preliminary ruling on coverage is not immediately appealable. I mean, th- those cases don't have collateral, stopple and race judicata issues that we have. But if that's where we were, a lot of those cases involve whether there's coverage or not to begin with. I mean, the coverage is not at issue in the underlying case. I mean, it's not that this is a matter of one uh, insurer trying to avoid coverage. There's coverage. It's just a matter of is it going to be all sums, policy limits, or is it going to be some portion of that?
0: So, uh, and you're speaking on behalf of Continental and Old Republic too. I,
1: I'm Continental, and I think that could be an issue um, that Old Republic or Federal could could agree to. But that's my understanding, and, and so, we'll, we'll so certainly make sure we reserve time. So none for, of
0: you are litigating litigating coverage.
1: That's mine. That's correct, Your Honor.
3: Can you address uh, the claim that the 2010 order, which. Uh, Dismiss the claims in regards to Continental, your client, and OR and FIC were dismissed without prejudice, and the allegation that, therefore, race judicata does not apply it in this case?
1: Yes, Your Honor. So the um, the judgment, the final judgment language is particularly interesting. And Kevin, if we could pull up 813. And so hopefully this tech will work. There we go. So page 813 of the record, this is from the final judgment in the prior case. And the, Judge Spanauer in that case, in paragraph A on page 813, says two very important things. He, he mentions the prior Granite State, Twin City, New England reinsurance summary judgment orders and says that those are hereby confirmed and have the force and effect of a final judgment or decree. This is, ties into my why words matter sort of argument. If this order were limited to just those three parties, Judge Spainauer could have absolutely stopped right there. But he didn't. He went one step further. And he said these orders shall be binding on all parties to this case with respect to policies addressed in these orders. That binding on all parties, again, is key to our argument about collateral, estoppel, and race judicata.
3: Well, didn't he then later in that same order dismiss you as a party to the case?
1: He said on page, I don't know if you can get 814, I don't know that I've got that one saved, but on page 814 of the record, um, Judge Spainauer says that all of, and we'll pull that up, he says all of SPX's remaining claims against other remaining defendants are hereby dismissed without prejudice. He does not say all claims against Continental in this case are hereby dismissed with prejudice. He says all of the remaining claims. Now what are the remaining claims? Because we contend the claim about allocation, the pro rata versus all sums allocation, had been established. That claim was resolved higher up in the order at, at the language we just looked at when he said, binding on all parties.
0: But wasn't he referring to the primary and the umbrella?
1: There were, there were drop-down issues that were still in play as to whether or not certain policies drop down. Um, there were other lines of coverage policies at issue. So the Continental comes out of the general signal line of policies. There were other lines involving other predecessors for SPX that were still at issue. I believe that's what it was referring to, not those that were resolved by binding order up in paragraph A on page 813.
2: What about the argument that we're looking here, in this case, about these excess policies as opposed to what Judge Jackery just said about the umbrella policy? Well, that's what I'd
1: like to go to the—can you pull up the chart, the Exhibit 1? No, the Exhibit 1 chart. There we go. So, this chart that we've got um, displaying now, and this is language that SPX, they focus on the portion of Judge Spanauer's language that says, with respect to the orders addressed in those policies. Understandably, they like to try to avoid the final judgment language with that. But Granite State, Twin City, and New England Reinsurance moved for summary judgment in a prior case. We know that. And they were granted summary judgment. Now, why were they granted summary judgment? Because everybody in the preceding case admitted that the underlying policy controlled what the obligations of the excess carriers were. SPX admitted that a number of times in the preceding case. In fact, they said the coverage issues turn solely on the interpretation of the underlying coverage. And they said that any decision, whatever the court decides with respect to the primary policies, would be binding on the excess insurers if the insurers are still in the case at the time. What I've done here is color-coded what those underlying policies are. These are the policies addressed in the order because we know to determine what the obligations are on an excess carrier, the trial court had to examine these underlying policies on the right in order to grant summary judgment on an all sums or pro rata allocation issue. And these are, if the court looks at the top box, and these are all the compilations from the record, these are the exact same policies that control Continental's obligations. The green policy was one that Granite State had in play. The yellow, both Granite State and Twin City had. The blue, Granite State and Twin City had. And then the purple, Granite State, and Twin City had as well. So the, the same policies were addressed, consulted, interpreted, construed, and that's what controls the obligations on any excess carrier. It's not like Continental has different language. SPX is not pointed to any different language in a Continental, their excess policy that controls the issue. In fact, on page 37 of their brief, they make the point that the fundamental issue in their mind is what does this particular policy mean? And they cite two pages in the record and they note in a footnote that there are, there is material equivalent language in two other policies. This is not a continental policy that they're referring to. The four policies they are referring to are these same color-coded policies that we just looked at. So, they can't say this issue, this claim, was not resolved in the prior case because Judge Spainauer looked at what that actual language means and determined it was pro-rata allocation instead of an all-sums allocation. So, Your Honor, we contend that there was a final judgment on the merits. Um, there is a risk of inconsistent Results. And, in fact, we're already facing that because of the same language. In one case was prorata allocation. In this case, it's been determined for some insurers to be all sums, Twin City, Granite State, um, and New England get prorata from that same language.
2: So are you, is your argument that there's incons- the, the potential for inconsistent verdicts because – your verdict might be different from somebody else's verdict who got pro rata versus yours is all awesome. sum. Are those the inconsistent verdicts you're talking about? That's the
1: inconsistent results. Correct, Your Honor. Because we're looking at the same language.
2: But isn't that, isn't, isn't our case law not inconsistent verdicts between you and another party, but an inconsistent verdict for you in a different case should the trial law board?
1: Your Honor, again, I think, well... With our argument that Judge Spanauer's language is that this final is a final judgment binding on all parties, we think we're a party to that. We, we think it's same claims. We think we got advantage of that, not just that um, another carrier got advantage of that. We think we got full advantage of that language in the order. So we submit that was a final judgment. So it's we believe it's inconsistent as but, to— But
2: your argument, then, is that the the— I guess that the decision in this case is inconsistent with the prior decision, correct? But correct. Then the harm has already been done, if it were from your point of view. So looking at it now versus at the end of the case, that, that, that isn't basically, that doesn't fit within our jurisdiction for inconsistent verdicts.
1: I, I, I disagree, Your Honor. Um, we, we submit that uh, we have a binding judgment saying pro rata, we know, given Judge Bridges' ruling below, he's holding us to an all-sums allocation. That is what will ultimately be entered, um, and, and that's, ju- that's an inconsistent result. Sure. sure. I mean, I
2: think your argument is that it was wrong, correct? But for this—when we're looking at an interlocutory appeal, which is, I think, what we're all concerned about up here, is that when we're looking at an inconsistent verdict, we're trying to figure out what exactly— Might be inconsistent going forward. Well, it's already happened.
1: Well, uh, that just seems a little inconsistent to me that the (laughs) if the if the case were filed against us and we we uh, we just filed a twelve B six right off the bat, um, saying hey look we we resolved this previously. That the court, based on that question, I'm hearing is that risk of an inconsistent verdict might exist at that point because. Yeah, we agree that you might have gotten the benefit of the prior judgment, which said pro rata, and now you're facing a trial where that issue is going to be determined again, and it could go against you and be all sums. So there's a risk of an inconsistent result at that point. It seems sort of uh, illogical to me to say now that we're further into the case, and we know that the court has ruled, we know this is going to be reduced to a final judgment at some point, to say, well, now it's... It's too late because it's already happened. I hope the court sort of understands the distinction I'm trying to make there. Um, we know there are inconsistent results. Um, and so we think the race judicata applies. But collateral stopple applies as well in that, and I just want to refer to the McInnes case because I'm over my time and I want to get Ms. McKay on the Titan valve um, or the Viking pump issue. Um, uh, the McInnes case on collateral stopple, I think is directly on point. Um, And it it sort of expands the collateral estoppel doctrine to no longer require mutuality of estoppel between all the parties. And it said, plaintiff McInnes had its day in court on the issue it now seeks to relitigate. Both actions are based on the same breach of contract under which Ms. Hall's obligations were exactly the same as her husband's. And we submit that's on point with the case here. SPX has already argued That underlying contract language and what the obligations are and it lost on that issue and it's now seeking to relitigate. Thank you, Your Honor.
4: May it please the Court. Um, I am going to address the Viking pump issues, but if I could speak to the inconsistent verdicts just quickly. In this case, in our action, Twin City and New England, which sit above Continental and follow form of the same policies, got an order the same day as our May, as Continental's May 21st, 2021 order. Twin City and New England got a pro rata allocation order. So we have inconsistent verdicts in this case, following form to the same policy language. The, um, the rationale for that's not entirely clear um, from the court's order with respect to Twin City and New England, but the court found that a balancing of the equities favored. Twin City and New England, not Continental. Um, again, it's not really clear, but it is absolutely inconsistent. In this action. Um, But if I could move on to the Viking pump issue, Um, I'd like to address the error the trial court made with respect to the court's apparent finding that the other insurance condition in the underlying umbrella policies that's incorporated into the continental policies mandates all sums allocation. It does not. Um, The court, if you could go to um, the record 1850. Um, on June 5th, 2020, the trial court entered an order with respect to a number of other defendant insurer's policies, that's London, LAMRAC and Travelers. And if we look at paragraph 10A um, of that June 5th, 2020 order, the court found that under New York law, all sums is the proper method of allocating indemnity costs when the insurance policy contains or follows form to a policy with one or both of the non-accumulation clauses that issue in Viking Pump. Um, The trial court's June 5th, 2020 order, that's that's referenced there, found that the excess policies at issue in that order contained one of these non-accumulation conditions or followed form to one of the Viking pump non-accumulation conditions. Continental does not dispute that factual finding. That's that's correct. Um, If you go to the record at 1957, on May 21st, 2021, the trial court entered the order from which Continental now appeals in which the trial court concluded at paragraph 23 that the Continental and Old Republic excess policies either contain non-cumulation provisions or follow form to policies that specifically contain non-cumulation provisions. The trial court was correct. The Old Republic policy contains the prior insurance and non-cumulation of liability condition at issue in the Viking pump case. And the Old Republic policy can be viewed at the record at uh, page 1178. The trial court erred, however, in concluding that the continental policies contain or follow form to a non-accumulation condition. It's undisputed they don't contain or follow form to one of the two Viking pump conditions. It's also undisputed that the underlying Northbrook and New England policies don't contain one of the two Viking pump conditions.
0: Um, I'd like to ask a quick question. Sure. Are your affirmative defenses limited to allocation?
4: The, our affirmative defense, Continental's affirmative defenses are not limited to allocation. But when you review the affirmative defenses, they are largely prophylactic in the event that, in case of. And so th- they're asserted to to preserve.
0: Well, are, are they defenses to coverage?
4: There, there are defenses to, and I, I understand what Mr. Durham said, in terms of we are not we are, Continental is not arguing that asbestos claims are somehow excluded from their policies. That, that's not an argument. There may be, there are issues in terms of the scope of coverage, what may fall within Why? or without, but it is not about not being covered. And I, d- I did want to clarify one issue with respect to the limits. Um, it's true, All Suns Allocation puts $20 million you know, at play right now. Um, when Mr. Drum referred to a fraction of the limits, it's a timing issue. The 20 million dollars in limits is still there, whether it's pro rata or all sums. But timing is critical in terms of the insurer being able to evaluate and, and um, prepare for payment of claims, and so so that's the issue there. Okay. It's, it's a timing issue.
0: Has your client withdrawn those defenses?
4: Uh, Cottonell has not has not yet withdrawn those defenses, um, but if they're not being pursued. Given, I mean. Th- um, SPX's sole count against Continental was for all sums allocation. and That's been done. And, and that's why we're here. Um, and I just want to say that the critical takeaway from post Viking pump New York jurisprudence is that pro rata allocation governs long tail claims unless a policy has one of the two Viking pump conditions. Um, and I'm sure the court has seen in our briefing. Brooklyn Union Gas and Danaher are the two cases post Viking pump. There are other cases post Viking pump that apply all sums allocation, but only where you have one of the two non-accumulation conditions that were at issue in Viking pump. No New York court has construed other language to equal that language. Um, And I will turn my time over. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
5: May it please the court. My name is David Wright. I practice with Robinson Bradshaw in Charlotte and have been co-counsel with Covington & Burling in this case. I woke up this morning thinking that we've uh, educated children, uh, had grandchildren, uh, all kinds of things since 2006 when we first filed these cases. And I've been in it uh, through, the, through two fine trial judges uh, and have made some good friends of my insurance colleagues uh, in the midst of it all. But it's been going on. A very long time. I thought that and, and the, the the first point I do want to say which I think is evident from the briefing is the first case really dealt with the primary policies which were the yellow policies on the chart that you've seen mm-hmm. and a slice of the green policies as first level umbrellas and only one excess sure granite state. So in response to one of the panel's questions it really dealt with the primary and umbrella uh, carriers and what, what we had from the excess carriers in the first action was Claims of non we're too far up, you can't reach us, we should be dismissed with prejudice. Judge Spainauer kept him in the case until the end when he let him out with prejudice, without prejudice. Where we are now in the case, I thought it would be helpful to tell this panel because uh, that's, that's happening right now. We have two, uh, we have more summary judgment motions scheduled to be heard in April and in May. One of those in May concerns the scope of the continental policies in terms of defense cost coverage. So the question is, for settled claims, does that uh, include do they have to pay defense costs or not? And that's a contested issue that's going to be resolved. Uh, The way the scheduling order uh, is in this case, what it provides is that 90 days after Judge Bridges makes this, this final decision with respect to summary judgment, then any remaining factual issues will be tried, otherwise we would expect to see a final judgment in this case. So to use a golfing analogy, we are on the back nine and the clubhouse is in sight after more than five years of litigation in this case, which really brings up the question why would this court at this juncture entertain an interlocutory appeal when we're so close to being done in the final case. And I think that really goes to the first point that I would say, and I believe my good colleague here, Mr. Durham, really uh, collapse the inquiry of race judicata, collateral estoppel, the merits of that with res- respect to the substantial right doctrine, which I don't believe is correct under under this court's jurisprudence. And I would say, having reviewed many of those cases, uh, it's not exactly a tranquil pond when you look back over all the court's uh, decisions with respect to race judicata and how it affects the substantial right And trying to implement really two Supreme Court decisions, Bocqueg, And the Turner versus Hammond's case to try to determine exactly what the interplay looks like. And I would say, though, that the first two things that the court, uh, we would urge the court to consider are one, whether or not uh, there is something other than a substantial right being effective. What would be lost? And I believe, Judge Collins, you had this question what would be lost if we waited? And that's a part of this court's jurisprudence to say something has to be lost as a part of the inquiry here, uh, in addition to being close to final judgment, what we would point out is this order is an allocation order only. It's a declaratory order. It does not award money damages. It does not uh, — there's no injunctive relief. At this point, SPX has not allocated any dollars to these Continental policies or Old Republic or Federal, which are way up the line. So there's nothing that, is, that Continental is required to do. That would operate to divest themselves or prejudice them from a, a substantial right. Could it so,
2: be? Could it be that claims might be made in the interim um, against some of these policies, and that they will be forced to pay out those under an awesomes just policy? Ca- and then, I'm sorry. You, you go where I go. Uh,
5: what I would say is, this order does not require payment of anything. So if we're looking at whether the order, which I think is the inquiry, does the order impact a substantial right? The order does not do that. Is it possible that down the road at some point there may be some allocation or request for payment? I suppose that's possible, but we don't have a lot of time left in this case. So in terms of the, the operative standard, does the order require a forfeiture or prejudicing of a substantial right? We would say in this case it does not. And that's separate and apart from the merits of the collateral stifle or race due to kind of issue. The second part we would point out, really, that is unrelated, uh, uh, and this is the point where I would say it's a bit of a checkered history, and I, I believe this Court has said that there was a split in the authority uh, uh, amongst the Court of Appeals on this point, but, but it is, it's, it, when we're looking at the question uh, of possibility of inconsistent verdicts, I believe the law now is clear and settled in this Court. That you you can't simply show that that race, suit, or collateral stop is not like qualified immunity where you just say, I have a motion, it's been denied, my right is the right not to stand trial, and therefore I can take an interlocutory appeal. The jurisprudence of this Court, what, what we've said, and we've cited the Heritage Operating Case, and I believe the other case that we've cited in our brief is the Dewey Wright, Well and Pump Company case, which talk about this. But there are decisions from this Court in the last several years which emphasize the point that it's, it's not simply uh, a collapsing of the race to the collateral estoppel issue, but it requires the showing of the possibility of inconsistent verdicts. And we don't have that here. A verdict is a, is, is a word that means something, to use my good colleague's uh, line here, and a verdict means a factual finding. This is not. This is a legal finding. And it means the decision by a jury. And granted, there are some decisions that talk about a judge or a jury But in general, when you look at it, it's two trials relating to two factual issues. And there are cases, I'm not going to cite them uh, on Rule 28. We didn't cite them in our brief, but they're out there, which basically say if it's an issue of law resolved on summary judgment, then there's no possibility of an inconsistent verdict. So I would say those are the two preliminary points that we get to, to say is there a substantial right affected, and why would you entertain it at this juncture in the case before we even talk about the merits of the race judicata issue.
2: What about uh, the argument that I think that I heard, that it would be beneficial for all parties to have these, I guess, these cases decided at this point? It's one less case to decide, um, and it's a whole lot faster than waiting till the end.
5: Yeah, well, I think the waiting to the end is not going to be very long. I mean, I believe we're going to be this – after nearly six years of litigation, I believe Judge Bridges is going to want to be done with this case this year. So I don't think we're talking about waiting very long. The problem is this is not a cost-free exercise, as this Court knows. Uh, because what happens is there there, get, there gets to be a delay in the case, and the record indicates we cite in our brief that for a three-year period through 2018, my client paid out $72 million in fees as we're waiting to resolve these issues with our insurers. So as the longer we wait, the more costs that we have to incur. So it's not a cost-free exercise here. The other thing I would say is, in terms of uh, of doing uh, of resolving this now, is we've got pending motions in May that talk about the scope of this vi- of these very policies. And to uh, Judge Zachary, your point, I did not hear my good colleague Ms. Ms. McKay say that they were waiving their affirmative defenses. They continue to assert those. The issue of trigger of coverage continues to be uh, to arise. So why would we resolve? I guess why why would it be uh, consistent with the public policy of this court? And the strong uh, reason not to have piecemeal review, to go on and review one part of a ruling when other issues remain in the case vis-a-vis these continental policies. The last point, Judge Collins, I would make in that regard is, and if history be any guide, what happens is when you get to the end of this case and you get all these rulings, some of these cases drop out for appeal. In parties resolve the issues. They become less significant because of other rulings. It, and that's exactly what happened when, we, when I was up here before arguing in 2017. We had a number of these cases, a number of these issues dropped out. So I think in the end, if you allowed, if the encouragement and the final point I make is this would be a bad precedent for a complicated insurance coverage case and an invitation, quite frankly, for further delay. So I think for all of those reasons, we would urge this Court to exercise what it has historically done with respect to the substantial right doctrine in this context and dismiss this appeal.
2: I just have one more question. I noticed in, uh, I think it's your letter to, um, to Judge Bridges um, arguing against 54B certification. You said that it, the issue remained whether bodily injury, sickness, and disease in asbestos cases occurs continuously from the date of an underlying claimant's initial inhalation. I think Judge Jackery asked about that question, too. Is that still remaining before?
5: Yes, we, we believe that that and we filed uh, motions with respect to that issue. We put forward affidavits with respect to this trigger of coverage from uh, from scientists who talk about the diagnosis uh, of asbestos disease and how it affects individuals. We're, we're waiting to see exactly who's going to contest us on that point, but we have not had folks line up and say we concede with respect to the trigger of coverage. So that is the trigger of coverage issue that I referred to that I do believe is still live in the case. So what, what we um, – the, the, the third point I want to make, and my colleagues spent a good bit of time on this, is really talking about the judgment uh, at issue here. And if we could at this point pull up our slides, is that possible to look at the judgment slide for a minute? which the Court looked before. Here's the point that I want to make at the outset with respect to looking at this from a collateral stop or race judicata standpoint. There, we say there is no prior judgment and no prior adjudication regarding the continental, federal, or older public policies. Uh, so th- that the all sums slash pro rata issue was not actually litigated in the first action by these parties, and there was no judgment on the merits construing the meaning of the Continental, Federal, or Old Republic policies. And that has implications both under preclusion principles, i.e., if there is no former adjudication, if there is no actual litigation, then there can't be preclusion. It also has implications Back to a question Judge Collins, you asked about whether there's inconsistency or not. If there's no resolution of the issue, there can't be an inconsistency, because by definition there wasn't a prior resolution with respect to their policies in the action. And it is important to understand the context of that decision, where, again, we, those decisions were in 2009, 2010 was the final judgment. Viking Pump, which was 2016 decision, was not around, nobody was talking about it. Nobody mentioned, I will tell the court, nobody mentioned the word non-cumulation in the five years we litigated in that first action. Not an issue. Uh, Viking Pump had a change in the law. So, again, that, that, that litigation was focused almost exclusively on the primary policies, which largely don't have non-cumulation provisions. But here's the point I, I do want to make sure the court um, understands from me. Continental and federal, never filed any motion on the merits pertaining to their policies in the first case. Not one motion. They never asked the court, Judge Spainauer, to rule that their motions were governed by pro rata allocation. They never joined in any other insurer's motions on the merits. They took a different tack. They, again, argued there was no justiciability. That motion was denied. They were left in the case, uh, but, but what, what, what the Williams versus Peabody case says, and this is black letter law, is an issue is actually litigated for purpose of collateral stifle, not only if it's raised by the pleadings, but is otherwise submitted for determination and is, in fact, determined. Old Republic, only slightly different. It has no order in its favor with respect to pro-rata allocation, and we'll look at that in a second. They actually joined one uh, with uh, – they have one policy, and they joined with one, uh, one motion, but never uh, sought an order in that respect. And so what we have, if we look um, here at the uh, – can we see – are we able to see the judgment, please, on page 5? On the judgment at page five, what it does is it lists the prior and confirms the prior orders in paragraphs two through four. None of the orders in paragraphs two through four, none, pertain to the Continental, Federal, or Old Republic policies. So, of all the judge, all all these orders that are being confirmed there are for policies other than uh, Continental, Federal, Old Republic. So these orders, it does say there, are binding on all parties in the case, but only with respect to the policies addressed in the order, which is the language the excess insurers wanted. What this judgment does not say, and what the insurers are arguing here instead, is that the orders are binding even with respect to policies not addressed in the orders i.e. their policies are not addressed in the orders, yet they're arguing this language means that the orders are binding with respect to those policies. So what we say is this. We have the opposite, in our view, of actual adjudication. We had a strategic decision because of justiciability issues not to litigate on the merits, the pro rata, all sums issue with respect to their policies, not to file merits motions, And consequently, no decision and no orders on those policies. And so if we move to page six, which we looked at previously, in this response to Judge Wood's question about whether or not the remaining claims were dismissed without prejudice, and they were. So the question is, what, what does that mean, the remaining claims were dismissed without prejudice? And the remaining claims would be the claims or contentions pertaining to policies that are not referenced in paragraph two through four. So these insurers' policies were not referenced in paragraphs 2 through 4. So all claims regarding those policies that that have not been adjudicated are dismissed without prejudice. And so under black-letter law, and I don't think there's any division between the parties, if there is no ruling on the merits with respect to the policies, if they're dismissed without prejudice, then it puts them in the same position as if the lawsuit had never been filed and there's no claim preclusion or issue preclusion issue uh, as well. The fifth point that we say in conjunction with this issue uh, is that the issues are not identical. What this Court has said in order for collateral estoppel to apply, and that's the only conceivable doctrine that could apply here, and I'll explain why in just a minute, because claim preclusion does not apply in a declaratory judgment setting. But but issue preclusion requires that the issue be identical, and what this Court has said in the Beckwith case and the Williams versus Peabody case is that this is an, a very close examination of the matters actually litigated have to be made to see if they're identical. And we say they're not identical for this reason. Uh, not only was there no decision with respect to the policies, but there was no issue here. What, what Judge Bridges decided here looking at these uh, clauses uh, is that the pol- the Continental and Old, uh, old Republic uh, uh, you know, policies uh, had a, a non-cumulation provision, and under Viking Pump that non accumulation provision meant all sums. Again, Viking Pump wasn't around. Judge Spinauer never heard of it, never decided it. That issue was never litigated. So if we're looking at whether there's inconsistency in the actual issues litigated between the prior action and this action, we say there was none. There was no uh, some, no, no exact identity as to the issues to implicate that. And the law is clear that any doubts about that, any doubts about whether the, the, the two issues are identical, are resolved in favor of the non moving party. Because this, by, as we, let, let us, lest we forget, all of this is their burden. It's their burden to show a substantial right. Race to collateral estoppel, that is an affirmative defense. All of this burden exists on their part with respect to these issues. And so what the, this Court has said is that the burden is on the party asserting collateral estoppel to show with clarity and certainty what was determined in the prior judgment. And that's the McElhaney case uh, that, that, uh, that is cited uh, as well as the Miller Building Corporation case. So We say they can't show identity of issues here. As I indicated, race judicata, that is claim preclusion. That word's used loosely to encompass both branches sometimes. That uh, does not apply here for two separate reasons. The first is, and we cite the Barrow case on page 33 of our brief, claim preclusion, the rule against claim splitting, if you will, does not apply in a declaratory judgment. The sole claims here in the first section were for declaratory relief, Uh, against the excess insurers, and the law is clear you're not required to bring every claim against a party uh, when you just bring uh, a declaratory judgment proceeding, and that's what we did here. In addition, the way that claim preclusion works is you are are precluded in bringing not only claims that were actually litigated, but claims that could have been brought. Whereas here, the remaining claims were dismissed without prejudice. There's no basis upon which to conclude that claim preclusion would exist. The last point we make in our brief, and we would, we would say if the, if the court chooses to reach the merits of the, the collateral estoppel issue, is there was a substantial change in the law which we say forecloses the application of collateral estoppel here. Viking Pump effected a substantial change in the law. Judge Bridges noted that several times in his decision. There's little question about that. And Viking Pump, at page 259 of its decision, says, we have never, this is talking about the Newark Court of Appeals, the highest court in New York, we have never addressed the interplay between non-accumulation prior insurance provisions and allocation. So it's a case to first impression in 2016. And what this, what, what the Supreme Court uh, said in the Settle By and Through Sullivan case, that's a great name, and this court in the Tart Landing case said is adopting the restatement, uh, uh, Section 28 of judgments, it said if the, if, if, you're try, if the issue is collateral estoppel and the issue is one of law, not fact, but law, and a new determination is warranted to take into account an intervening change in the applicable legal context, then collateral estoppel doesn't apply. So if you get through all of this and you conclude that everything I've just said is, uh, is wrong, uh, then what we would say is, look, at the very least, there's been a substantial change in the law here. And the litigant, our client, has the right at this point to have its policies adjudicated with respect to what everyone agrees is the proper substantive law, New York law, and there is zero question that Viking Pump says if a non accumulation provision is in a policy, then you get all sums. This is, excuse me. This is particularly the case when we're dealing with these upper-level policies that haven't suffered any judgment that you have to pay out any money yet. So what we're talking about is, I mean, the idea that you would, as a North Carolina court, would allow essentially what, what, you know, fail to reflect a change in New York law that is applicable to policies that have not yet gotten into play would be, we say, inconsistent with what this court has said in that regard. So what that, I will say just a few things about the merits. Um, uh, that that uh, because that has been addressed, to to make it simple and this is not simple. Um, Viking Pump is 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 not simple, but but what the simple part of this is that Viking Pump says if there if a policy has a non cumulation clause, then all sums applies. So what we're doing here is we're looking at the the clause and the, what the court said is all sums allocation is appropriate. In policies containing non-cumulation provisions, so the merits issue here is: Are these policies in the North, the, the Northbrook, and New England umbrella policies? Are those policies non-cumulative? Are those clauses non-cumulation clauses or not? That's the question. And the pertinent language, which is on page 37 of our brief, um, uh, it, it appears under a condition. It's called an other insurance condition, and it's. The, the Northbrook policy and the New England policies have the same thing. And if we could possibly pull up the, the Northbrook policies, please. So, yes, if we, yeah. and if you, can, if you can just pull up the three sentences with respect to the other condition here so that can be on the screen. Perfect. And the next slide that kind of pulls that out. So what we're looking at here in terms of the merits is this. I've isolated for the benefit of the court what the provisions are that Judge Bridges ruled upon in our favor, and he ruled that this was a non-cumulation clause. What Viking Pump says simply is this. If, if there's language that permits the conclusion uh, that, that a loss is going to be covered by more than one policy, that is successive policies, prior success or successive policies, then pro rata doesn't work. It's a legal fiction and it doesn't apply. And so the question here really is, if we look at this and we look at these sentences, this is talking in the first sentence about pure other insurance clauses dealing with other policies. That's not what we're arguing here. We're arguing that the second and third sentence amount to a non-accumulation provision. And what that says is that if there is any other policy that is implicated here, any other policy, not just, as the insurers want to say, any other concurrent policy, but if there's any policy, any successive policy, any prior policy, then there's going to be an anti-stacking rule. That is, if there's a loss, then you can't stack the limits of all of those policies. And so we say Judge Bridges got that right. The argument, to the contrary, ignores, we say, Court of Appeals case law, particularly the Nesmith and Geraldo cases which are cited, at pages 39 and 40 of our brief do not require any durational or temporal language there. And the the Danaher Travelers case that they cite deals with primary policies where there's a regulatory issue, obviously not here. But what we say is simply this, any means any. (laughs) Any means any policy whether successive uh, or not. And if you consider our argument as we believe Judge Bridges did properly, under the canons of construction about the reasonable interpretation about ambiguity being resolved in favor of the insured, about what a person would understand would typically be the meaning of that, and if there's any, essentially any doubt has to be resolved in the favor of the insured, then we believe we must prevail. Absent any further questions from this court, Uh, my argument is concluded. Thank you. Any further questions?
0: Thank you. We have no further questions. Thank you. You may proceed with your rebuttal.
1: Your Honors, and if we may have just a couple minutes so that I can confer with all the public and federal and make sure we get
3: Good afternoon. Uh, may it please the court. I'm David Brown from the Guilford County Bar here on behalf of Appellant uh, Federal. And I just kind of wanted to take one minute just to answer Judge jackery's question in, in context um, about where Federal stands. So uh, like Mr. Wright, I've been involved in this case since 2006 in one form of and agree we've come good friends over that, over that time as well through a lot of these issues. So what I want to raise to the court is this. Federal has three policies in effect from April 1 of 82 to April 1 of 85. They all three sit over Continental, so we're up on top of Continental, and Continental in the first one of those three years is over a Northbrook policy, and over the last two years, over a New England policy. So fundamentally, what we would say is if you decide to rule on the merits of Continental's appeal, that you should rule on ours as well because it's the exact same issue, judicial efficiency, et cetera. We're both talking about the New England policy that that we both follow form to, Um, and if if not, we'll come back another day. (laughs) With regard to the the, the direct answer to Your Honor's question about where we stand, um, the federal policies have not yet attached. There's not been reached, so there's been no demand for payment under those policies. We've not waived any affirmative defenses. We do still have affirmative defenses to be litigated. But fundamentally, I think the issue before, uh, under the federal policies, is allocation. And Is it going to be all sums or is it going to be pro rata? And just briefly to the point or question Judge Collins raised, you know, about Cases that might kind of come along, the underlying cases, that is, in the next, say, 18 to 24 months if we wait to come back on another day after a final order from Judge Bridges. Um, What's unique and interesting about this case, and these substantial right cases under this court's jurisprudence are all handled on a case-by-case basis, as you all are well aware. What's interesting and unique about this case is that Judge Spanauer ruled that the New England policy is subject to a pro-rata time on the risk allocation. There's no dispute about that. There was no appeal of that in the underlying case. So that's how that policy, those policies are going to be dealt with as you sit down at the mediation table and so forth to resolve these underlying cases. Under the current rules from Judge Bridges, the Continental policy over that, and then in turn the federal policy over Continental would would have a different construct, a different rule, even though they're following the same language, which – I don't, want to, I don't want to steal anybody's time talking about <laughs> why we think that all sums uh, does not does not apply here, uh, but I, I do think that creates. And again, it's a case-by-case analysis, but I do think that goes to the substantial right analysis of having a situation where you've got the same policy language being handled and interpreted, and it, frankly, as we stand here today, having court orders in effect that treats them differently. And how does one sit down and try to? Resolve underlying cases in that way. And I think, I don't want to speak for Mr. Durham, but I think that was part of what he was getting at in terms of how it might serve everyone to have some clarity. So that's all I want to say about the federal policies. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
4: Very briefly, I'd just like to address um, a couple of things SPX's counsel said about the Viking Pump issue. Um, the Nesmith and Geraldo cases are both before Viking Pump, and as we know from the sentence, Mr. Wright read Viking Pump never addressed the interplay between allocation and non-accumulation provisions, so those, those cases can't be relevant. Further, they, they, didn't, they did not address other insurance, they did not address allocation, trigger any of those other issues, and they say as much. So those, those cases shed no light on the issue. Um, with respect to the language, um, the chart that SPX's counsel showed you, um, what SPX is, is saying is that any other in the first sentence means concurrent, because that's what Viking Pump and Consolidated Edison said but any other in the second and third sentences means consecutive. And those words just are not in there. The hallmark, the the word cumulative is, is not the key here. The hallmark of the Viking pump language are temporal words, partly before, partly within, prior to the inception date hereof, continuing at the time of termination. None of that language is in the Northbrook Other Insurance condition. And if you compare the Northbrook Other Insurance condition to the condition of Brooklyn Union, They are virtually identical. What they say is if more than one policy issued by this company, concurrent coverage under New York law, more than one policy issued by this company applies to a loss, you only get one limit or you only get to recover once. You don't get to accumulate, which simply means to add or combine together. There's no temporal aspect to that word. And SPX's counsel is trying to rewrite this other insurance condition to be a non-accumulation condition, which which it is not. It It is simply... A limits provision that tells you how many limits you get for a loss covered under concurrent coverage. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: And then I will wrap it up. All this talk about Viking Pump reminds me about our petition for cert. Uh, a question, an unsettled question of law, uh, is grounds for granting a petition for cert. And certainly, the, this court could bring some clarity to what does Viking Pump actually mean and settle that issue uh, for uh, once and for all. I submit as well, if the court looks at Judge Bridges' rulings in this case, um, he cites that there is a balancing of equities test when it comes to race judicata, and that absolutely is not the law in North Carolina anywhere. So we submit that could be corrected on the petition for cert as well. there was mention about claim preclusion is not applicable in a declaratory judgment action. In our reply brief, we said, while well, that's not absolutely the case. I'm not aware of any case where a party got a ruling on an issue in a declaratory judgment action and then was able to go re-litigate that same issue. If the issue was decided, it's decided. Claim preclusion absolutely applies to that particular claim and issue. The change in law as to collateral estoppel, same thing. Tarlanding and Beasley do not support what SBX claims it says. Those involve different parties that were at issue. Again, there is no case that says a party that, had, that litigated an issue and lost it is able to relitigate that same issue because of some subsequent change in the law. That case law just does not exist. The final point is on this, whether or not an issue was tried, what controls Continental's obligations? What controls those obligations are the underlying policies. Then we ask simply, all right, has any other court looked at those underlying policies before to determine what they mean? And we absolutely know that Judge Spanauer looked at those policies and determined what they mean. SPX should not be able to relitigate that meaning in this case. Thank you, Your Honors.
0: Thank you that concludes oral argument in this matter I thank you counsel for your excellent arguments we'll take this matter under advisement All right.